In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear Saints, what is the greatest commandment of the law? If you could only keep one commandment, which one of those would it be? And this is what the Pharisees want to know. Knowing which is the most important helps us know which one to focus on the most. And what does Jesus say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And, of course, that's exactly what I and everyone else expected him to say. But then he goes on, and he continues on by saying what is totally unexpected and says, And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Take note of this. The lawyer is asking for the most, the single most important commandment, but Jesus gives him two. Because love your neighbor as yourself is not an appendix or an additional obligation to the first great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself is the concrete way you keep the first commandment. Last week you learned that the law cannot be separated from love or how you shouldn't put God above your neighbor or your neighbor above God. And today Jesus is driving home the point that loving God and loving your neighbor are one and the same thing. So if you want to keep the first one, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, then you keep the second one. And if you keep the second one, then good, you've kept the first one. The two go together, they rise and fall together, they're inseparable. You either fulfill and accomplish them both together, or you accomplish neither. And Jesus speaks this way. He says, there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. In other words, they are two parts, but they're one thing. In fact, we end the divine service with this prayer. You might remember this. It says, we give thanks to you, almighty God, that you have refreshed us with this salutary gift. And we implore you that of your mercy would strengthen us through the same in faith toward you and fervent love toward one another. We're praying that God strengthen us to keep his law, all of it, that we believe in him and that we love one another. Jesus drives this point home even further in Matthew 25 when he says, When you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you served your neighbor, you served and loved me. So let me illustrate it this way for you. Suppose Jesus announced that he were coming to Zion today. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, pastor, he's here every time the word is preached, every time uh, the, the baptism is given, every time the Lord's Supper is given. He hides himself in these things even while he's with us. Yes, this is true. And Jesus is truly present with us. And this is precisely why we act the way we do in the divine service. This is precisely why we sing what we sing and kneel and cross ourselves and act reverently and we pay attention because Jesus is actually and truly here. This is a holy place because Jesus is here, so we should treat it like that. Nevertheless, what I'm saying is what if he were here visibly? What if we could see him and embrace him? And what if he came and took a seat in one of these pews? How would you act? How would you behave? 
My goodness, I don't think there's anything you wouldn't do for him. You would say, you want my seat? Take it, right? You want some food? Let me buy it. You need money? It's yours, no questions. You would hang on his every word, no interruptions, no talking down, no yelling, no gossiping. You'd do none of these things to him or about him. And, and what if he said he were going to go to your house after the service? You'd run home, you'd prepare everything you have, you'd put on your best clothes, give him your best food, do everything to the best of your ability for him. And I imagine that there's nothing that you wouldn't do because you love him. So now think of this. Jesus is commanding that we are in fact to love him in the same way and receive him in these ways. And this is a great honor and it's critically important. But here, Jesus tells us that we're to love our neighbor in the same way. And that when we love our neighbor, we are in fact loving God. So this means that when you love people here in this church who sit in the pews, when you talk to them, when you ask them how they're doing, when you spend time with them, when you encourage each other with the promises God has made in his word, when you, you're in fact giving, uh, you have in fact been given the privilege of loving and serving God himself in this way. And children, when you listen to your mom and dad and you do what they tell you, you're in fact loving and cherishing and obeying Jesus. It's a tremendously high calling. And parents, when you're feeding and serving and changing your children, then you're in fact feeding and serving and changing Jesus. Husbands, when you love your wives and you speak well of them and you're not harsh with them, you are loving the Lord your God. Wives, when you submit to your husbands as to the Lord, you are submitting to the Lord. And all of you, when you take care of one another, when you speak well of one another, when you are patient with one another and put everyone's need above your own, you're in fact doing it for Jesus himself. So you love and you serve God not privately or secretly or individually at home or in isolation. You love and you serve and you do things for God when you, when you do these things for one another. Jesus places your neighbor before you, before your face, and then he says, here, embrace him, talk to him, feed him, clothe him, care for him, love him, speak well of him. And whenever that is done, he renders that service as you loving Christ himself. This is Jesus teaching here today. The command to love God and the command to love your neighbor are one. There is a distinction but there is no division. This may be more than what the Pharisees bargained for when they asked this question, because not long after you think of how beautiful and wonderful this teaching is, you soon realize all the times that you haven't been very kind or loving to your neighbor. It doesn't take long to recall how frequently and grievously you failed at this. And so that does mean that every time you have sinned against your husband or your wife, your children or your boss, your parents, then that means really you have sinned against God. Every time you have yelled and demeaned and slandered your family, your friends, your loved ones or co-workers, you have indeed done these things to your dear Lord. If you have hurt them, then you have hurt God. 
If you have lied about them, then you have lied against God. If you have hated them in your heart, then you've hated God, so on and so forth. Do you see how this is working? When you love your neighbor, you love God. And when you hate your neighbor, you hate God. This is why David cries out in Psalm 51 after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and then murders Uriah. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. So here's the problem. This is what it means to fulfill the law. If you want to be saved by the law, this is what it requires. There is no lenience here. You can't say you love God and then treat people like dirt. You can't say you're a Christian and then berate one another. And yet, which of you have treated Christ with all the respect and honor and dignity that he deserves by treating one another in the same way? And which of you have a clean and spotless record, a clean heart, and a right spirit within you? Which of you can honestly say with a good conscience and raise your hand here today, stand before everyone and say, look, I've never been annoyed with or frustrated at or angry with or mean to anyone else in my home, in my church, my work, or my entire life. The question could go on and on and on, and we'd never leave because we'd never find an end to this list of sins. But before we go on being forever condemned by these questions and the reality of our sin, before the Pharisees fall into despair over the fact that they haven't loved their neighbor and therefore haven't loved God, Jesus interrupts these questions with a question of his own. And he simply asks this, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? This is astounding. Because for weeks and months and years, the Pharisees have been asking Jesus so many questions, question after question about everything. What about the Sabbath? What about resurrection? What about the marriage? What about paying taxes to Caesar? What about washing your hands before you eat? What, what do I do to become good? What does the law say? How do I inherit eternal life? So on and so forth. All of these questions, they ask them endlessly. But now Jesus begins to ask them a question in his final week of his life. And it's not about the law. It's not about what we're to do and not do. It's about the Christ. He switches the subject. And he wants them to think about the Christ. He says, whose son is he? David's son, of course. Jesus knew they would get this right and just any, about anybody in the church would. David knew that the Christ would be a descendant of David. So why would David, Jesus follows by asking, why would David, speaking in the Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, being infallible in the 110th Psalm of the Psalms, knowing that the Christ would be a man, why would he call him Lord? Why would he say, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Why would he call them him the almighty God and how could he call him man and God? So do you see what Jesus is doing here? When it comes to salvation, Jesus is taking our eyes away from ourselves and he teaches us to put them on him. 
When he asks this question, he cuts to the heart of the gospel. And on this matter, our fate before God really hinges on the matter of the gospel and not on the keeping of the law. And this is what Jesus wants you to know. He wants you to know that your salvation is found in the gospel, in him, in his flesh. And the gospel is this, that God became your neighbor. And he did this by becoming David's son and by becoming David's Lord. By assuming the humanity into the divinity, he would become both God and man. It's not that he would simply look like or appear to be one person, but that he is truly one person, 100% God and 100% man, fully in one person. And he did this because he loves you, because you also are one person. But you're a person who has not kept the law of God. You're a person who hasn't loved God above all things. A person who hasn't loved your neighbor as yourself. So Christ came to keep this law for you. By loving his father and by loving you perfectly. And Jesus had to do it this way. There is no other way. Either he saves you by becoming a man and taking on flesh and bitterly dying in your place, or he doesn't save you at all. But he chose to save you, which means he had to take on flesh and become a man. And we confess this in the creed, who for us men, for our salvation, was made man. God becoming a man was the only way he could take your place. Think about it. God doesn't have a father or a mother to honor and to submit to. So he caused himself to be a man and made himself to have Mary as his mother and Joseph, his guardian, as his father, so he could keep the fourth commandment for you. God cannot die, but out of love, he he took on flesh and became mortal to die in your place on the cross. And at the same time as being a man, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior had to be God because he had to be God because keeping all the commandments would have saved only him if it were if he were only a man. It would have only been for his benefit, but not for the benefit of anyone else. However, if this dying and this bleeding and the suffering and the sighing were done by God, then he would have the power to do it not for himself, but for all people of all time ever in the history of the world. So Jesus had to be 100% man and 100% God. He had to be man so that he could die, and he had to be God to apply that death to all. In fact, listen to what Acts chapter 20 says. Uh, Paul is speaking to the pastors, and he says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you pastors to care for the church, which he obtained with his own blood. Whose blood is this? It's God's blood. It's the blood of God. How could he have blood? And yet, it doesn't say that God won his his church by the blood of a mere man, but by the blood of he himself, by God himself. The church can only be obtained by God's blood. Do you see this? The the law is summed up by loving God and man. And the gospel is that Christ is both God and man and fulfills this. So Christ must be a man to be our substitute. He can't merely be a man. He must also be God. Because only God's blood can purchase sinners and Pharisees and liars 
and murderers and gossipers and adulterers and failures and mortals and me and you from death. Only God's blood can erase our sins and save us. Only God's blood can become the righteousness of the entire world. Only the blood of God is endless and boundless and immeasurable to cover all of your sins. Only the blood of God himself dripping from his hands and feet and pouring out of his wounded side and pouring from the pores on his face is enough for your salvation. The blood of lambs and goats and bulls and a thousand perfect and holy men is not enough. It must be the blood of your Lord. And that blood is given to you here today, which forgives all of your sins. So, dear saints, remember that the law is important. You look to the law to learn when, when you are kind to one another, love one another, when mothers change their children and feed them, when fathers provide for their families, when children obey their parents, when you all provide and care for one another. You're all loving and serving and cherishing God as he's done for you first. But don't for a second look to this law for your salvation. Rather, when you remember that you haven't done these things, when you have failed to do them, when you have failed to be joyful in doing them, when you fail to love those around you for whatever reason, when you've treated others with disdain and contempt, and even when you've done these things perfectly, and when you haven't done them purely and perfectly, you take your eyes off of yourself and you repent. You'll have a thousand questions flood your mind saying, have I been good enough? Have I done well? Am I too sinful? So on and so forth. And when this happens, you close your mouth and you listen to the one question that Jesus asks. The one question that matters. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And when you learn from Jesus Christ himself that he is David's son and yet David's Lord. That God, the Son of God, came to this earth to spill his blood for you and drained his life for you. That God died upon the cross for you. Then you have the salvation he came to give you. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.